This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It was a balmy spring evening in 1974 at a quiet beach house in the Bronx, New York. Anthony Gaspipe Casso had dressed for the occasion in his sharkskin silk suit and Italian leather shoes. On the table before him lay a pistol, a knife, and a picture of St. Peter. These were the tools of his baptism. Surrounding him were members of the Lucchese Mafia family, all silent, all watching Anthony intently. Each of them knew the gravity of this moment. It was time for his vow of silence and obligation, Omerta. He finally spoke. I, Anthony Casso, want to enter into this organization to protect my family and to protect all my friends. He'd waited years to say those words. Lucchese family captain Vinnie Beans grabbed Anthony's hand and pricked the right index finger with a needle. He squeezed the wound, watching as droplets of blood oozed out of Anthony's trigger finger and splattered on the picture of St. Peter. Then, Bean set the picture aflame and dropped it, burning, into Anthony's hands. Anthony smiled as the flames licked his palms. It had been a long time coming. He was finally one of them, part of the family, a made man, a Lucchese soldier. The men kissed cheeks shook hands, started to laugh. Anthony was already one of the richest criminals in Brooklyn and deadly to boot. With the Lucchese's now behind him, he was ready for the next step of his career. There was money in his future, lots of it. And with that money would come blood. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard, and this is Kingpins, a ParCast original. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them, and how it changed the community around them. 
You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Kingpins in the search bar. This is our first episode on Anthony Gaspipe Casso, a powerful and enormously wealthy kingpin in the Italian-American mafia. He was famous for subjecting his family to a bloody purge that killed at least 40 men. Casso came to power in the 1980s and ran criminal operations ranging from bank robbery to drug dealing to labor racketeering. He didn't run them gently. By the end of his career, he'd be known as a homicidal maniac. This week, we'll explore his rise from a well-connected Brooklyn kid to a ruthless mafia crime boss. Next week, we'll hear how his determination to protect his family ended in a bloodbath. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. The Italian-American Mafia was at the height of its power in the 1980s. There were more than 20 criminal families, or organized crime groups, thriving across the U.S. But the epicenter of Mafia power was Brooklyn, New York, where the so-called five families were based. The Bonanos, the Columbos, the Gambinos, the Genovese's, and the Lucchese's. They worked together, creating Mafia policy and settling disputes through their ruling body, the Commission. Through a combination of regulated extortion, bribery, and violence, these five families controlled most of New York's criminal operations and many of the labor unions. At the same time, these gangsters were constantly fending off the increasingly aggressive surveillance and infiltration tactics of the FBI. The families couldn't get away with making that much money and wielding that much influence without the feds taking notice no matter how many police officers and FBI agents they paid off. The feds were making every arrest they could justify, and the mafiosos were feeling the pressure. By 1988, the five families were in the midst of a crisis. The Bonanno family had been voted out of the commission for overtly dealing drugs. The Colombo family, torn between two leaders, was undergoing a virtual civil war. In sweaty August 1988, it was time for the commission to meet. The Gambinos would be represented by John Gotti and Sammy the Bull Gravano, for now. Gotti had killed their family boss, Paul Castellano, two years before, in 1986. This was an open secret, though Gotti insistently denied it. One of the commission's items of business was to vote on Gotti's status as the head of the Gambino family. Representing the Genovese's was their boss Vincent the Chin Giganti and his underboss Benny Eggs Mangano. The Lucchese's would be represented by Victor Amuso and Anthony Gaspipe Casso. With the FBI's eyes on all the bosses, setting up the meeting had been a logistics nightmare. Each man had to be ferried to the meeting through a complex route of vans, garages, and basements, in case of tails. 
Their bespoke suits were creased by the damp, muggy air by the time they arrived. But it was worth the trouble to make the meeting happen. This was how the mafia was run and had been since 1931. Anthony Casso and Vic Amuso were the last to arrive to the meeting. Amuso was the Lucchese family boss, and Anthony was the underboss. But all heads turned towards Anthony as the pair entered the room, alert for any signs of violence. Everyone knew who really ran the Lucchese show, the complex game of managing 120 made men and their criminal enterprises. They knew it was Anthony who decided who to kill. Amuso liked the politics of his job, but he let Anthony deal with the business, the man behind the man. They shook hands, kissed cheeks, and murmured hellos. Each of them was wary and guarded. Then Gotti launched the meeting with a speech. He was still searching for Castellano's killer, he assured the group, following some leads in Italy. He promised they'd have blood soon enough. No one was buying it. They knew he'd killed Paul Castellano, his own boss, without the approval of the commission. Anthony seethed as he listened, though his eyes stayed impassive and blank. Gotti had no idea that the bomb in his car two years ago, the one that killed Frankie DeChico, had been Anthony's doing, on the orders of the chin and then Lucchese boss, Anthony Corallo. Little did Gotti know that as soon as Anthony got another chance to assassinate him, he'd be the bloodiest man in Brooklyn. A tiny, grim smile twitched at the corners of Anthony's lips. He gave an almost imperceptible nod to the chin. But now was not the time. Not yet. When the vote was called, every hand in the room, even Anthony's, rose in assent. They weren't happy. But Gotti was already in control of the Gambino operation, in all but name. John Gotti, the commission affirmed, was the Gambino family boss. Anthony's expression was flat and cold. This was all a farce. Gotti had betrayed his own boss. That's not how things worked in the Mafia. The price of betrayal was blood. Anthony would make sure Gotti remembered that. Anthony knew the Mafia's customs like the back of his hand. He'd been raised with them from the time he was born in Brooklyn in May 1942. Anthony's father, Michael Casso, was never a made man himself. But Michael was a part of Brooklyn's Italian-American community. His parents had immigrated from Sicily. That meant he socialized with made men, as mafiosos were called, knew their codes, and benefited from their crimes and influence. One of Michael's best friends from childhood was Sally Calambrano, a powerful captain of the Genovese crime family. Sally made sure Michael got good, steady work at the Mafia-controlled docks and had access to the regular skimming that happened as goods passed in and out of New York. Sally was also Anthony's godfather. Anthony grew up spending Sundays at Sally's club or Mafia family picnics in New Jersey, surrounded by made men. He marveled at the respect they paid the mild-mannered, impeccably dressed Sally. There was wealth to be gained from the life these men lived, and community, and honor. 
Mafia meant man of honor in Italian. Anthony wanted that, even as a little kid. These men lived by their own rules, and these rules made sense. More sense than the arbitrary city laws enforced by the cops in Brooklyn, many of whom bowed to the Mafia's demands for a payoff. He despised their corruption. But Anthony always knew that the Mafia's rules included plenty of leeway for violence. The honor and respect these men garnered, the community they shared, even Sally's mild manners and nice clothes, it all ran on blood. Everyone around Brooklyn knew about the Mafia murders. In 1954, at age 12, Anthony witnessed his first. And over the course of his teenage years, he'd see many more. He'd later describe what he learned from South Brooklyn's streets. Kill or be killed. It became an education. Even Michael Casso, Anthony's calm, easygoing father, learned to survive as a fierce street fighter. It's reportedly from him that Anthony inherited his nickname, Gaspipe. Michael carried an 8-inch lead pipe with him to give his punches an extra sting. Anthony loved and respected his father. He'd even call him his best friend until the day his father died. But Anthony didn't just want to be a street fighter. He wanted to wield a gun like a made man. He was just a kid when he started practicing his aim. And he was a natural. Everyone around South Brooklyn knew about him. Anthony Casso, that boy was a crack shot. School, however, was less of a natural fit for Anthony. He was smart, but by the time he was a teenager, he knew the life he wanted didn't demand a stellar report card. Instead, he fell in with a gang of teenagers that called themselves the South Brooklyn Boys. They didn't commit serious crimes mostly relegating themselves to clowning around the neighborhood and getting into fistfights with other gangs over turf or girls. But his involvement with the gang led to his first tangles with law enforcement and the first glimmers of his ability to negotiate and lead. In July 1956, at age 14, he established a delicate alliance between several of Brooklyn's Italian street gangs convincing them that banding together was the only way to prove their dominance over their Irish rivals. This would be different than the little street scraps their groups had been fighting on and off for years. It was time to show the Irish boys that just as the Italian mafia had asserted dominance over the Irish mobsters, the Italian teens were the strongest on the street. Anthony led his crew, around 100 teenage boys, into battle. They loved Anthony. He was serious, but he was funny and charismatic, too. They'd follow him anywhere. The Italians won the fight. Anthony was elated. He'd done it. He gathered together an army and won a war. And all he'd gotten for it was a night in jail. It was a small price to pay for taking down the hated Irish. Thanks to his connections, Anthony got off with a warning. But he already knew there was no turning back for him. As he'd later put it, a life on the streets was the natural order of things for him. And on the streets, there was one way to gain power. Get made. Anthony was determined to join one of the five families. 
To get there, though, he would need to find his own way. The Mafia closed its books indefinitely in 1957, when he was just 15. They weren't accepting new men into the five families, and no one was sure when they next would. They wanted to protect their ranks, to keep themselves safe from informers, or rats as they called them. Only men of the highest quality were welcomed, men who were smart, discreet, hard-working money-makers. Despite his connection to Sally Calimbrano, Anthony knew he would need to forge a reputation for himself on the streets before the Mafia would accept him into their ranks. He'd need to get his hands dirty and bloody. Coming up, we'll hear how Anthony became one of Brooklyn's richest, most powerful, and best-liked independent criminals. The 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness is built to take you further off the beaten path. It has 9.5 inches of ground clearance paired with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive, plus off-road wheels, rugged all-terrain tires, and advanced dual-function X-Mode to help get you through deep snow, gravel, and mud. The 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. Adventure elevated. To explore all you can do with the rugged Subaru Wilderness family of vehicles, visit Subaru.com wilderness. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-patrollable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Now, back to the story. Anthony Gaspipe Casso grew up surrounded by the Mafia. He desperately wanted to be a made man and join these powerful, wealthy men of honor. And he showed that he had important qualities as a leader, a negotiator, and a fighter at a young age. But the Mafia's books were closed in 1957. None of the five families were accepting new members. He knew he'd need to prove himself so that if and when the books opened again, he'd be the first to get made. In 1959, when he was 17, he started two no-show jobs, courtesy of his godfather, Sally Calimbrano, a Genovese captain with powerful influence at South Brooklyn's docks. No-show jobs were, and still are, a hugely lucrative hustle for mafiosos. They gave themselves and their friends on-the-books jobs in businesses they controlled. The jobs came with steady paychecks, but workers weren't expected to show up. The con was an easy way for mafiosos to draw illegitimate money out of legitimate business. At 17, Anthony was raking in a full-time dock worker's salary and an even higher paycheck as a member of the management team for popular singer Tony Bennett but his days were entirely his own. He had both capital and time. 
and he used that time and money to take his friends and girlfriends out to eat and drink. He was generous, funny, and suddenly very sharply dressed. But he had steely, serious ambition beneath his playboy exterior. He didn't plan to sit around drinking and romancing pretty girls for long. He wasn't interested in becoming a Hollywood cliché. This wasn't enough. Over the course of 1960 and 1961, he got himself yet another no-show job. He also started investing in mafia-protected after-hours clubs, collecting bookmaking money, and carrying a gun. He was dipping his fingers into as many mafia pies as he could, getting a feel for how they ran their businesses. His education was overseen by Christy Tick Fernari, a Lucchese captain he met through Sally Calambrano. Christy liked Anthony. He liked his ability to shift from generous good humor to serious, business-like detachment. He was smart, trustworthy, and Christy knew his family. Plus, he got his cut of everything Anthony did in return for his mentorship and protection. Anthony wasn't made, but he was becoming even more well-connected. And with those connections came benefits. In the spring of 1961, he tested just how far those benefits would go. While driving through South Brooklyn on a quiet spring day, he saw a local Italian girl he knew waiting at a bus stop. Standing next to her was the neighborhood junkie, Bobby Bebop. He was getting close, growling and muttering. Anthony noticed how uncomfortable she was, stiff as a board, looking straight into the street. Bebop was harassing her. Anthony felt a cold fury settle over him. He knew the girl's mother. He slammed his brakes, grabbed his gun, and ran out of the car. Stepping between Bebop and the girl, he demanded that Bebop leave. Bebop just stared. As a junkie, he was mistrusted and disliked around the neighborhood, but he was connected. His uncle was the nephew of a Genovese captain. And this Anthony Casso, he was just a punk kid. So what if he had a gun? Everyone in this neighborhood had one. He knew Anthony wouldn't use it. Bebop laughed in his face. Anthony repeated himself, his dark eyes glazing, his muscles bulging. Bebop shoved Anthony. The argument escalated. Bebop shoved Anthony again. Anthony retaliated by shooting Bebop six times. Amazingly, Bebop suffered only flesh wounds while Anthony was arrested. Anthony was lucky. Shooting a mafia captain's nephew could have been the end of his career when it had barely gotten started. He had taken a risk. But he had taken a risk in keeping with mafia code. Italian women were sacrosanct. Street harassment was unacceptable. For $10,000, Sally Calambrano was able to convince Bebop's uncle that Anthony shouldn't rot in jail for this crime. When the case came to trial, Bebop suddenly couldn't recall who shot him. These were the rules. Violence and money shifted between families and captains, tying them together in a system that held far more weight on the streets of Brooklyn than the law. In no time at all, Anthony was out of jail. He started running new cons. The first involved a quiet alliance with the Brooklyn truck drivers who ferried goods away from the docks. 
They regularly carried loads of clothes, TVs, and household appliances worth $10,000 or more, the equivalent to about $84,000 in 2019. Anthony would buy the loads off the drivers and sell them to Brooklyn Fences. The drivers' bosses would hear that they'd been robbed at gunpoint. Anthony liked this con. He'd later say, no one was hurt. All involved profited. Even more than that, he liked robbing banks. Anthony and his small crew would dig into vaults through neighboring basements, then break into safety deposit boxes with their so-called burn bar, a portable tool which got so hot it could burn through steel. By the time the bank opened on Monday, they were long gone. Heist like this became his specialty, but he didn't shy away from the occasional violent crime either. Starting in 1965, mafiosos started coming to him when they needed a gunman to scare someone or kill them. A gunman who, because he wasn't made, couldn't be easily connected with them. Most of this work was for the Lucchese's and the Gambinos. Violence didn't bother Anthony. He was happy for a chance to help the Mafia, which he still hoped to officially join when the books inevitably reopened. And this was his world, the world he was born into, the world he embraced. He learned a long time ago that the only real rule in life was kill or be killed. One of the first jobs involved an errant Gambino man who needed a few well-placed bullets near his head, but not in it, to remind him to obey his family's rules. The next contract was for a Lucchese associate who was snitching to the DA's office. A bullet above the ear at a mafia-run nightclub did the trick. Anthony started to kill for himself and his personal operation, too, beginning in 1973 with a business associate who was cheating him. Anthony had to off him on principle, as he later explained it. If one man he worked with got away with cheating, they'd all give it a try. This attitude of business and loyalty first was working for him. His various theft operations, no-show jobs, and the occasional favor-garnering murder were making him a rich, well-connected man, and not just with the Lucchese's. He cut deals with men from every family. And he knew that with all the money he was making, he needed to spoil his loved ones. In 1968, he married Lillian Del Duca. In 1970, he bought his parents a house in upstate New York. He bought nicer cars nicer clothes, took his new wife to the fanciest restaurants and left enormous tips. Things were looking good for Anthony Casso. All the bosses took note. They liked his earning power. They liked his tight-lipped, cold-blooded willingness to kill when he needed to, but only when he needed to. They liked that he respected the rules. More than anything, they liked him and his ability to earn so much that they turned the other cheek when he quietly added a major drug operation to his list of rackets. He started importing marijuana, cocaine, and heroin. The five families didn't officially condone drug dealing, but for Anthony, they turned the other way, just as they did for discreet men within their own ranks. Anthony couldn't control everything. His father, his best friend, died in 1970, shortly after Anthony bought him his big country retirement home. 
The death changed Anthony. His charming good humor showed up less often, his cold stoicism more. But if anything, it made him a better criminal, more cool-headed, more ruthlessly logical. He was starting to wield real power. The decision didn't take him long. He chose the Lucchese's. He could have been made by any of the families, but he was loyal to Christy Tick Fernari, who had backed him from the time he was a teenager. And while the Lucchese's weren't the biggest family, they wielded powerful political influence and let their men run their hustles with a fair amount of independence, as long as the family got its cut. He liked that. The decision didn't take him long. He chose the Lucchese's. At age 32, after a successful career as an independent criminal, Anthony Gaspipe Casso finally did it. He took the vow of Omerta and became a made man. Coming up, Anthony's power grows, and so does his body count. This is your invitation to plug into a lineup of Lexus electrified vehicles built at the intersection of performance and design with a range of options to fit any lifestyle. A feeling this electric is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the elevation of electrification and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Inventory may vary by dealer. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now back to the story. In the spring of 1974, Anthony Gaspipe Casso was made by the Lucchese family. After over a decade operating as an independent criminal, he was finally a mafioso. And as Anthony predicted, joining the Lucchese family left him with his freedom. He continued his bank robberies, his drug dealing, and his various other cons largely undisturbed, all with the help of his friend Vic Amuso. Amuso had also been made by the Lucchese family when the books were reopened. It was business as usual, just with additional protection and resources. As a soldier, the lowest rank in the families, Anthony didn't have any made men to command, but he didn't mind. He was doing too well to complain. He began purchasing various properties, including several pizzerias and a Manhattan department store to launder his money through. It's impossible to say exactly how much he was earning, but we do know he was regularly spending $30,000 on shopping trips for himself and his wife. That's about $155,000 today. Of course, business still demanded the occasional killing. Notably, in 1978, he shot a young man he feared was about to turn informant on a drug deal. He started burying him as he writhed to death, bleeding out into his grave. He also dealt out death for men who messed with Italian women or with Lucchese family operations. Twice in the 1970s, he had men killed for assaulting his neighbor's daughters. Three times, 
He murdered Lucchese family rats or enemies. But in 1980, six years after Anthony became a made man, everything changed. Christie Tick Fernari sat Anthony down at the 19th hole, a Lucchese bar in Diker Heights, Brooklyn. Christie explained his situation. He was being promoted from the role of captain to consigliere. Each family had one consigliere who acted as an advisor directly to the family boss, and he wanted Anthony to take over his role as captain. Anthony looked at Christie quietly, considering the implications of this choice. He was a smart man and careful. He hadn't become one of the richest men in the mafia by accident. The role of captain would get him closer to the head of the family. It would give him more influence in Lucchese decisions and business, more men to work with. But Anthony wasn't sure if he wanted it. It came with managerial responsibilities and liabilities that didn't interest him. He turned Christie down. He suggested that Vicka Musso, his good friend and business partner, might be a better fit for the role instead. But Anthony didn't plan to stay a regular Lucchese soldier. He had another position in mind for himself. He wanted to be Christie's man. Each consigliere had one direct report. That direct report worked regularly with and around family management, without any of the more tedious responsibilities of the captains. It would give Anthony a special insight into family operations. Christie, reminded of Anthony's wily independence, agreed to the request with admiration. Equally impressed by Anthony's scrupulous, clever approach to his criminal life was the FBI. They knew about New York's bustling drug trade, and they had received tips that Anthony was a major player. But they couldn't link him to his operation. Anthony never went near the drugs himself. He didn't even take drugs. He left that to dispensable, low-level conscripts. Anthony was wisely paranoid about avoiding bugs, conducting most of his business right next to the booming jukebox in a dark corner of the Lucchese's 19th hole bar. It wasn't a fancy spot. It stank of whiskey, and you could barely hear yourself think. But it was perfect for avoiding the feds. The FBI could never catch him on tape. Over the course of more than three decades, during which he was running cons and drug deals, they never got a single recording of his voice. All they had on him was whispers. No one he distrusted got near him either. And if anyone did betray his trust or messed with his operations, he'd put a bullet in them. Or, as he rose in the Lucchese hierarchy, had someone else put a bullet in them. But Anthony wasn't only killing the men who messed with him personally. A growing part of his job involved eliminating rats from within and around the Lucchese family, per tip-offs from corrupt FBI agents they had in their pocket. Every family needed a sweeper, someone to rid them of loose ends, whether those loose ends were their own men, associates, or witnesses in government trials. For the Lucchese's, that was Anthony. He didn't mind the job. The families had their psychos, the ones who killed for fun, who made a mess that everyone else had to clean up. But that wasn't Anthony. It wasn't that he liked killing. It was just that sometimes people in this business had to die. 
He was, as he'd later explain it, taking out the garbage. One crisp fall day in 1982, two members of the Gambino family walked up to Anthony's usual table at the 19th hole. Violent, powerful John Gotti and Gotti's right-hand man, Frankie DeChico. They explained their predicament. No one in their family had been able to eliminate a loose cannon in their ranks, Roy DeMeo. DeMeo was breaking all kinds of mafia rules, murdering members of the family without commission consent, killing a policeman, selling murder contracts, and openly dealing drugs. But most alarming of all, the number of federal and state charges against DeMeo were mounting. Some members of the Gambino family were worried he was going to turn on them in exchange for a lenient sentence. The Gambinos needed DeMeo dead. But they hadn't been able to kill him. DeMeo was one of the Mafia's best killers himself. His crew supposedly killed between 70 and 200 people alone. He knew all the tricks in the game. No one he didn't trust was getting anywhere near him. But Anthony, they thought, could probably get it done. They knew he had the trust of DeMeo's right-hand men, the Testa brothers. The Testas would listen to Anthony. They respected him. And they knew the Testa brothers were the only men who could get close enough to DeMeo to kill him. Anthony laid out the situation for the Testa boys clearly and coldly. DeMeo was persona non grata amongst the five families. He was too far gone. The Testa boys could go down with him, or they could take him down and be welcomed back into the five families. The brothers understood. Killing their boss was their only chance at life. On January 10, 1983, the Testa brothers fired seven bullets into DeMeo's head. They wrapped him in towels, threw him into his own trunk, and drove his car to a quiet parking lot at a boat club in Sheepshead Bay. DeMeo was found frozen solid and very dead a week later. DeMeo was one problem out of the way, but the five families had another, bigger problem heading right for them. The feds were closing in on the bosses. Starting in the spring of 1983, the FBI got five bugs into key mafia hideouts. For the next year and a half, they collected and sifted through evidence from these bugs, figuring out how to put them together. As far as the five families knew, business was proceeding as usual, but their world was about to combust. On February 25, 1985, 11 defendants were indicted and arrested, including all five family bosses. Big Paul Castellano, Anthony Fat Tony Salerno, Philip Rusty Rastelli, Carmine Jr. Persico, and Anthony Ducks Corallo. They also arrested the Lucchese Consigliere, Anthony's boss and mentor, Christy Tick Fernari. All these men were enormously wealthy. They'd pay their million-dollar bails and spend the next year and a half awaiting trial at home. But everyone was tense. Things were about to change. The Mafia way of life was under threat. And then, on December 16, 1985, John Gotti, the Gambino captain, threw yet another bomb into the streets of Brooklyn. Without the approval of the commission, 
Gotti had his own family boss, Paul Castellano, murdered outside of Sparks Steakhouse in Manhattan. Everyone knew he'd done it. The mafia, the Brooklyn gossip mill, even the press. Within 20 days, according to mafia protocol, the Gambino family voted on their next boss. They chose Gotti. To be officially recognized as a family boss, however, the whole commission needed to vote for him. But until they next convened, John Gotti was running the richest, most powerful mafia family in America. Anthony, along with all the leadership of the rest of the five families, was furious. This was not how things were done in the mafia. Paul Castellano hadn't been the best boss, but the assassination of a family leader should have been ordered by the commission, not an overly confident captain. Blood demanded blood. The Lucchese and Genovese bosses ordered Anthony and his close friend Vic Amuso to kill Gotti and Gotti's right-hand man, Frankie DeChico. It was an unusually difficult job. Gotti was taking precautions, spending time in crowded areas like Little Italy, and encouraging the press's fascination with him and the Mafia. Reporters were always around. It was also difficult because Frankie DeChico was a friend of Anthony's from back in the days of their Brooklyn childhood. But Anthony knew how this system worked. Death was business. And he'd taken an oath, an oath to protect his family and the Mafia way of life. On April 16, 1986, Anthony got word that Gotti and his right-hand man DeChico would be attending a meeting on 86th Street and 8th Avenue in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. Anthony had a Genovese explosives expert plant a bomb on Gotti and DeChico's car during the meeting. Bombs were banned by the American Mafia due to their potential danger for bystanders. But they were popular with the Italy-based Sicilian Mafia, which had backed Paul Castellano from their territory overseas. By using a bomb, Anthony hoped to shift blame for the murder to the Sicilians. The bomb went off. The car exploded. The Chico was blown to bits. But all the effort had been for nothing. Gotti wasn't in the car. He had decided not to come at the last minute. Gotti was still alive, and now he'd be more vigilant than ever. Anthony was furious. His friend had died, the man he'd been more reluctant to kill. And John Gotti, who didn't have a scrap of honor in his body, was now running the most powerful family in the Mafia. When Anthony got another chance, he'd make this right. He'd kill Gotti eventually, and he didn't care who else he'd have to put down to do it. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Next week, Anthony does whatever it takes to keep the Lucchese family alive and gains the name Homicidal Maniac. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Kingpins, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. 
To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Paul Liebeskind. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Kingpins was written by Nora Battelle and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.